As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. What's Outlook right now? It's Stiefel. With our chief economist, Lindsay Piegs, that joins us right now. Lindsay, I don't want to get into the silliness of pivot this or pivot that. Where are we right now? What is your real GDP call for this ending Q4? Well, I do think there's enough momentum or ongoing resilience in the consumer that we will see a second quarter of positive activity, albeit markedly below the near 3% pace we saw in the third quarter. But the bigger question is, can we maintain that going into 2023? And I don't see that resilience being able to be maintained as we continue to see some of these variables increasingly weigh on the consumer, yeah. i.e. elevated prices, negative income growth, negative manufacturing activity, a housing market that's right. under extreme extreme pressure. So I, I think that we can argue you can check the recessionary box for nearly every sector of the economy, even at this point, except for the labor market. But even there, we're starting to see cracks. We're starting to see signs of emerging weakness. Right. So while we do maintain that positive uh, trajectory through December, I think 2023 right. is opening the door for a recession. Let's do Algebra Monday, Lindsay. It's Y equals, uh, I don't know what it is, C plus I plus G plus NX is out there somewhere. Can you split your analysis between domestic final sales and real GDP? Can you pair off trade dynamics? Or are they part of getting to a recession? Oh, absolutely. And I think this, this when we parse through the trade and inventory data, that's really what complicates the earlier weakness that we saw at the start of the year and why it's likely that we don't see a technical recession in hindsight called for the first six months of 2022. Because when you strip out that volatility from trade and inventories, we see that we actually had positive momentum from December into the first quarter of the year. So this is very much complicating the picture and will continue to complicate the picture going forward. If we look at third quarter GDP, now one of the largest contributors to that top line increase was trade, contributing nearly 3%. But a lot of that was reflective of the weakness on the import side. And that reflects a declining demand or a level of declining demand on the consumer part. Again, highlighting the fact that consumers are on increasingly fragile footing as we turn the calendar page into the next year. Lindsay, there will be some people tuned into this program right now, listening to another recession call for 2023 and wondering why on earth the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates by 50 basis points on Wednesday and probably signalling they're going to do a whole lot more after that. Lindsay, how do you reconcile those two things? 
Well, remember, the Fed is trying to slow the economy. So the fact that we're seeing increasing calls for recession in 2023 means that the Fed's earlier policy initiatives are already having the intended effect of tapping down investment, tapping down consumption, and resulting in a significant slowdown in the economy. Now, the reason the Fed is so focused on continuing to raise rates, not necessarily at the supersized 75 basis point increase that we saw earlier, but 50 basis points, and as you said, more work to come down the road, is because inflation is still elevated. And it this point, with the labor market still arguably on modest footing, the Fed is hyper-focused on bringing down inflation, reinstating price stability, which the chairman has said time and time again is the bedrock of the economy. So how much more damage do you think another 100 basis points of heightening does? Well, I think it ensures that we do see recessionary conditions, but depending on the behavior of inflation, depending on what we see in terms of international factors, that will determine the depth and duration of the downturn. But again, from the Fed's perspective, it's not about whether or not we see negative activity. It's about whether or not we can get inflation on a meaningful <coughs> downward trajectory back towards the committee's desired 2% oh, target range. What's your probability of getting back to 2% until England wins in football again, Lindsay? I mean, Come on, where are we getting back to 2%? 25 or is it 26? Well, if you look at the Fed's trajectory, they're still very optimistic that we're going to see a two-handle by 20, by the end of 2023, maybe early 2024. But I think the reality of the data suggests that committee members have been calling for this meaningful improvement in inflation for the better part of the past two years, and we simply have not seen that come to fruition. So the Fed, the market <clears throat> continues to underappreciate right. the complicated nature of the inflation equation at this point, and that's why, along with a 50 basis points increase this week, we do expect the Fed to meaningfully revise higher their expectations right. for policy and inflation going forward. Now, this is PX 101. It's service inflation, isn't it? I mean, we're going to get a reversion. David Malpass at World Bank was great on this years ago. We're going to get a legit goods disinflation, dare I say, true deflation. But services isn't going to get there. What, will you, what do you see as a sustained services inflation above 3%? I think that's absolutely reasonable, but you're right. We are going to see this bifurcation between goods and services, and already we're seeing it in the data outside of inflation. Manufacturing turning back into contractionary territory while we look at the ISM services index, and that is still arguably uh, on solid footing. And so this bifurcation, again, does yeah. highlight the difficult nature that the Fed is going to face in trying to tackle broader inflation pressures, particularly as we see this wage price but spiral continue to accelerate. Lindsay, you and John are way too young to understand this. We survived this before. If we only come down with services elevated to 5% or 4% or 3.8%, life goes on, right? People adapt, right? Absolutely. And we will come out of this. But I think the trajectory of how we come out of this depends on the Fed's resolve to reinstate price stability. If they start to get cold feet, if they start to pull back prematurely, then we could see inflation become entrenched in the economy, meaning that we don't see that improvement back to the Fed's 2% target. But if they stay the course, it will be more painful in the near term. But we could see the economy emerge faster and with more uh, gusto as we begin to get back to a potential level after that 2% target is reinstated. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you. Lindsay PX of that, of Stayful. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Laurie Cavasini joins us now, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, I just want to start with Mike's words and then we'll get to yours. Mike Wilson says the final chapter to this bear market is all about the path of earnings estimates, which we think are far too high. Laurie, are you on a similar page? Do you agree with that? So I'm on a similar page with Mike, but I don't exactly agree with him. I think it's a little bit more complicated. So we're at 199 for next year. The consensus has been around 230, 231. And I do think that the need to pull those forecasts down is going to create some headwinds, some additional volatility, perhaps a retesting of the low. But does it have to make a new low? I'm not so sure. I think the main issue here is that the buy side wants certainty around multiples so that they can come in and buy and we can have a sustainable rally. All the buy-siders know, and they've known since June, that next year's numbers were too high. If you look historically, most of the cuts and down earnings years are in by April. And if you look on a single stock basis, when the rate of revisions to the upside is falling, you watch for it to turn positive again. You watch for that shift from negative revision territory back to positive revision territory. And stocks typically bottom the S&P 500 price three to six months before earnings estimate revisions for single stocks stop going down. What that means is that if we can kind of get all these cuts out of the way by March, it's still reasonable based on the historical playbook for October to be the low. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to turn around, but I don't necessarily think that we have to break to a new low because of this earnings issue. And making a time call, I know it's really, really difficult, Laurie, but what do you suggest people do between now and March? So I think you have to back up and say, what have people already done and where are they? And most defensive sectors are near peak multiples relative to the S&P 500. And people have been loading into staples all year, rotating into healthcare since the summer. I don't think people have enough recovery trades for when we finally do put that final bottom in and start to recover. So we tell people, look at things like financials, look at things like tech, uh, look at things like small caps. Those are areas that typically outperform when you're coming out of a recession after you've made that final bottom. And small caps, frankly, John, are already starting to outperform. They put in their relative low back in May. So we think that people really don't need too much more defense. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily dump all your defensive shares right now, but I would start thinking ahead to that recovery right. trade, not just this final turn. Laura, I think of the great Dave, David Triple at Pioneer years ago who would explain to me that small cap and mid cap go once every nine years, once every eight years, whatever the pop is. And I read in your research, you're really looking for that pop to be this year. If we have a great zombie roll-up, which frankly we're beginning to percolate and see because money actually costs something, how do small caps react to the fact we now have a risk-free rate We have zombie companies that have to do something. How does that play into your call? 
So I think you want to be in line with the higher quality small caps, the bigger names, the more liquid names, um, you know, kind of where the typical small and mid cap portfolio manager likes to invest, not kind of the bottom three quintiles of market cap where you get tend to get the dicier balance sheets, you tend to get the lower quality names. We actually think there's plenty of valuation appeal in that upper echelon of small cap right now, which is one of the things that makes it so interesting to me because we haven't had that right. for a really long time. Are small caps correlated to the weaker dollar, finally end of strong dollar, international play? Do you cross-correlate those two categories? I think that the dollar is complicated for small caps. They have been benefiting Agreed. from an earnings perspective by dollar strength. If you look at, if you try to sort of match up the relative cycle with the dollar over time, you're not, you're going to just want to pull your hair out because it, it's not. Consistent. Watch yourself, Lori. Be careful with that statement. <laughs> but but recently they they've been benefiting from an earnings perspective because they don't have those pressures. I think that what I see right now, and you know, I just got off a, a week of being in Europe talking to investors there. They are very European-based equity investors are very perplexed by the expensive valuations that we have sitting in S&P 500 companies right now. You don't have that same valuation pressure down in small cap right now. So I think when you're, you're <laughs> right. starting to tri- you know, cross borders, I think you've still got the better valuation story here. And that will be appealing regardless of some of these currencies. But are they going? Are they going to roll up? I mean, I don't mean the quality small caps. And there's like three thousand, let's say, is a working number. What are the other yeah. twenty-seven under going to do? Or is there going to be one grand roll-up because money finally costs something? I mean, what do you mean by roll-up exactly, Tom? Mergers, the- transactions, combinations. Mergers. Microsoft You'll- taking out a teensy weensy bit of the London Stock Exchange today just to get on board. That I- kind of stuff. I. I think that you will get that in certain sectors where you have more valuation appeal. I think industrials, even though it's not cheap, is always an area where we see those roll-up stories and the reshoring thesis could further some of that along. But I think ultimately those roll-ups and that M&A cycle, that's really more about what wakes us on the other side of this recovery. In a sluggish GDP environment, growth is scarce. And companies, I think, will feel more compelled to go out and buy growth. And you can find that in some of those higher quality small caps, not necessarily the smaller ones. But again, it might bring you back to some of those higher quality, you know, more liquid type names. And Laurie, you've touched on something really important here, and that's about leadership in the recovery in the second half of next year. Is it too early to draw conclusions about where that leadership comes from? That's a discussion we're ultimately having right now. Why is the now the right time to have that conversation? I think it's the right time because, you know, you know, as well as I do, John, when these bottoms happen and people are convinced of these bottoms, they, they just sort of take off and you don't have time to get in. You have to do your homework early while things are sort of quiet and churning around. But I'll tell you, last week we did have a lot of discussions about what is the new leadership, typically in a sluggish economic growth backdrop, which I think is the price we pay for a short, shallow recession growth stocks outperform. But is it the old growth or is it the new growth? And that's why I think a sector like industrials is starting to get a bit overvalued. Now, we're just neutral there. We don't like the valuations. But we have been talking to people a lot about how that might be the best long-term growth story in town. And that might be one of the reasons why you're seeing these valuations lift. People basically kind of looking at the old economy and saying, what's old might potentially be new again. And that might be where you get sort of the better growth profile going forward. Laurie, this was brilliant. Don't be a stranger. Come back soon. Laurie Cavasina there of RBC Capital Markets. It is time for Global Wall Street to lean forward for one of the great, great calls of the last number of years has been the persistency and courage of HSBC to say strong and resilient dollar. They amend that 
Sort of. So we have a sort of kind of like discussion with Dara Mayer, head of Research Americas, and head of USFX strategy with the great Paul Mackle as well. I, I, there's an ambivalence to your note. You're not calling for weak dollar, right? Well, we're calling for a dollar correction. It kind of amounts to the same, but it, it's not this big trend reversal. In other words, we don't undo everything that we've we've delivered uh, by virtue of dollar strength over the last 18 months or so. so Let's talk to the, to people like John who, you know, trade off. Of, I mean, folks on the break here, John's doing FX trades here. <laughs> and you know, stop rumors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? I wouldn't want to do that. But is it a tradable come off the bloom after, that's a pun there, come off the bloom, get that, David Bloom? <laughs> great, great guy. Nailed that. Great okay. <laughs> is it a tradable come off the bloom, or is this going to be a messy sludge where nobody really makes big figures? Look, our thought process was we described that we thought it'd be this would be the chop before the flop. We'd have this really choppy period, like and then we'd, like we'd get the flop in twenty two. Yeah, but so it, nice phraseology, but completely the wrong way around. Because what we've had is the flop, and we're still kind of waiting for the chop. Okay. Um, you know, this the reversal we've had over the last. You know, we changed our dollar view for dollar bullishness to dollar. Uh, choppiness and then weakness just a month ago. And in that month, we've had like one of the biggest monthly declines in the dollar. So it's really, you know, even for quote unquote a bear like us now, or a newfound bear like us, it's, it's been a big old move. I, I wonder is the choppiness about to come though, you know, into the CPI, into FOMC, um, and, and into kind of the, the beginnings <laughs> of January where everybody thinks they know what the trend is for 2023 and then they're all suddenly forced to revisit in the first couple of weeks. Is there a risk that we're overplaying the one side of the currency pair? When I think about euro dollar, which got down to about 95, and then we avoided the worst case scenario coming into winter, we had that period of mild weather for the yeah. Europeans. When I think about sterling getting down to 103.50, I think intraday, the end of September, <clears throat> and coming back through 120, largely it was the other side of the trade. It was the sterling side, the euro side that really kicked off that move. We cleaned up the policy story in the UK. We avoided that terrible winter and the shutdowns we anticipated. Maybe they still evolve. I don't know. But do you think we're overplaying the US side of the currency pair? I would say, look, 2022 showed us that the dominant thing to get right was the dollar. I mean, we could at the margin, we had periods where this sterling was was the swing factor, a couple of periods where euro was. But I mean, look at us this week. We have got an ECB meeting. We have got an meeting. We're not talking like, about it. Who knew, you yeah. know? Um, and but, but I think there's a recognition and the reality is you've got to get the dollar right. And in a way... Before you get the dollar right, you've got to get the S&P right because risk appetite has been the core of everything that's happening in the FX market and, and to the safe haven dollar. So I'm not trading rates next year. I'm trading sentiment. You're trading row, row, risk on, risk off. Right. All We're the back way. to that. All the back way. Back to that. So when you think about paying some of that choppy dollar weakness through G10, what's the select currency pay you want to do that through? <clears throat> I think the high beta currencies on the way up in the dollar should be the high beta currencies on the way down. So your Aussie, New Zealand, your Noki Stocky, and less so the Canadian dollar. And we, we've seen that even in this dollar sell-off. You know, Canada has underperformed others. So I think you go to the, I, I mean, honestly, I'd say the Aussie perhaps and, and the Kiwi. Norway and Sweden, I know that's what you're day trading just as we came off, came on air, but, uh, you know, they're, they're for the braver man. The side. They're for the braver man, and that's why you're still having to do this gig as well. Um, <clears throat> so, I, I, yeah, I think Aussie, US <sighs> dollar. Harsh. <laughs> <laughs> Aussie, US dollar, and New Zealand, US dollar, they'd, they'd be the two. Does China reopening reinforce that trade? I think it's being overplayed a little okay. bit. Why? Um, I mean, the, the transition is going to be complicated towards you know, a reopened China. Uh, perhaps the market's slightly over-egging the, the tourist angle and, and what that might mean in terms of flows. Um, but it is encouraging, and the pro-growth <coughs> stance is encouraging. But you know, look, even at HSBC, we've been looking for a rebound in China six months down the road for two years. 
Um, so, okay. you know, as has the market. And it's difficult because every time we think, okay, we're right. going to get fair. there, we don't fair. quite get there. Fair, and you got the leadership there with the Hong Kong position, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. What is the pair in the Pacific Rim to play Asia Open? I think Korea will be one. Um, it, it's KRW high beta. KRW, yeah. Against what? Against the dollar. I mean, I think that's... You got to go against the dollar, I think, really. I think it's the cleanest way. Okay. I mean, I think you do... Uh, you know, to, um, to your question earlier, yeah. you do have to come back to a dollar view. Now, then how do you express right. it in Asia? I think Korea is, is one option. Right. Um, I guess the, the RAND is another <clears throat> high beta option. Right. Brazil is one you could like. So there's a few yeah. out there. Um, okay. For sure. Mohammed from uh, Cairo in Cambridge emails in and he says, would you tell, ask Dara about Durham Kuna? I mean, I mean, if we get a Croatian-Morocco final, Yes. I mean, they've got all these obscure currencies. I mean, going there. Do you have, are you like long the, I, the uh, Durham? I would, do you know what? I would love to be able to give you. The, I don't know why you I would love to be able to give you the big figure in that cross, but I have no idea. But uh, as I was mentioning in the break, I am trying to dust off my family tree to see if I've got any Moroccan heritage in there so I can join in the celebrations when they beat Croatia in the final 3-0. That's been fantastic to see. You think a Croatia-Morocco final? Is that what you're looking for now? We've always been counter-consensus at HSBC, so why not? Soccer guys, can I ask you a question? They play before the Sunday game, like the third, second Tuesday and Wednesday. No, but the oh, losers right. yeah, play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's never a great game to watch. <laughs> yeah. I what know. Are they, I mean, it's, everybody's it's like, don't hurt me, right? I don't know why they played that game. I really don't. Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's like a whole I think game, it's like finding it's finding the bronze medalist, isn't it? And also, how, really wanted? how easy was it to get tickets for this World Cup? I'd love some insight into that because every time I watch the game, they say it's another sellout, and I'm like uh, look looking at, at the it, stadium. I'm totally with you. I, um, are yeah. you gaslighting me? Because I could see literally France, thousands, England was like thousands of empty seats. France, England, I thought was busy. Yeah. But why do they keep of... saying it's a sellout when there's thousands of empty seats? Well, look in England, you might think they're all down the pub, right. but you know that that could be a risk. <clears throat> um, I, right. I don't know. It just well, you can sell a ticket. It doesn't mean you have to. Turn up. Is Steve Major made an appearance yet? Have you I spoken mean, to Steve Major? No. I have spoken to Steve Major. I don't know if he's been at any of the games. I think he's he's watching from he's, Hong Kong. He's probably oh, looking oh, forward to yeah. Premier League yes, football starts good. in the new year again, Tom, and we can so, sort of yeah. move on with life and forget about all yeah. this. You keep bringing up this England loss, don't you? You just won't let it go. No, I'm fascinated by it. As a foreigner, I mean, I, I'm a foreigner to soccer. Okay, let's okay. get let's get to the foreigner point of view. Do you think we've set the stage for a great World Cup in four years' time? In North America, it in is the US and Canada and Mexico. superior to where we were 90 days ago. Is it a big deal? I think, yes, it will be a big deal to a new America. A younger And there's an older America. Audience. Right now, I'm focused on is Carlos Rodon going to end up with the Red Sox? That's all. He's a, you're just love thinking him. about that. Okay. He's like the Mbappe. He throws only fastballs high in the strike zone. But that's a diminishing America. And it's an older America, and the new America, I think, will really embrace it. Does Fox have does tell, tell me Telemundo is going to do it? I'm sure they will. Yeah, I watch on Telemundo, but I was here in '94 for for the original it's USA too, it was World too Cup early. soccer it was too World early, Cup. Wasn't it? Well, it's too early for the US, but Ireland beat Italy. So one more, you know, okay. I'm still living off I'm aware that one. Of that. Italy living. played. Yeah, Italy played and lost I, to I, Ireland I like, in New York. Can you I imagine cried the in that final. atmosphere? Was I that cried one? in that final. I can't even remember that final. Brazil penalty shootout. Oh yes, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Roberto Baggio over the bar. I think Franco Baresi missed the penalty. <clears throat> I think Massaro missed the penalty. Does he AC remember Man this striker. and yet remembers nothing about markets? Oh. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> is Dara one of your friends then? Yeah, he paid no, me he before he came on. thought he was one on. of mine. <laughs> You've got me trying to knock his stock uh, on the side. Email and... <laughs> in. Seriously, Maria Tadeo is on leave today. And uh, we, we thank her for her comments the other day. That was really a high on leave. point. She's got a couple of days She off. gave, I think Maria very courageously gave to a lot of the American audience, frankly global, how people really care about it. We, I, I, I will say with Great certitude. We just don't get that. Their national identity is wrapped up in their football team. Yeah, it was particularly a great for moment. countries like Brazil. For countries <clears throat> like Brazil on the international stage, it's something they're super proud of. Mm -hmm. So for that to go the wrong way, we do okay there. I think the I don't know if Dara's coming back. Yeah, Look, maybe I don't know. If, you know, if, if I'm around the table, maybe that won't be happening. Come back as Dara. your sports correspondent. I'd appreciate that, Dara. <laughs> Fantastic to catch up with you, buddy. Cheers, as likewise. always, Dara Mayer. Happy holidays of HSBC. <laughs>yeah, absolutely. Uh, in a lot of dire straits here. Uh, it has to be cold as far as the distillate market, Tom, uh, here in the Mid-Atlantic and the New England market areas. The Northeast United States consumes 70 percent for space heating, uh, home heating oil. Uh, and right, there's still a dearth of product. We, we've had a significant sell off over the past week, a week and a half in this market. And quite frankly, right. my clients, the heating oil, the, the people on the boots on the ground, people who have to consume, they, 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 they buy and they sell and they, they distribute heating oil, they're perplexed by the move lower. They cannot find product, very difficult for them to find product, and yet prices are still moving lower. So it is a conundrum for uh, for some of my home heating oil people here right. in the Northeast. You know, I, I look at Javier Blas with a great chart out this weekend as he writes up his Bloomberg opinion piece on the spike, the surge in English utility costs. Do we get the same surge if we get the same cold? Or are we, are we managed in a way where distillates, core oil, gasoline, diesel, the rest of it, where we don't see a spike like they see in Europe? Uh, we won't see quite the spike that we've seen, but we are, we have, and we will continue to see a, a spike in demand, uh, not only for home heating oil, uh, but of course our electricity costs, our natural gas costs are, are sky high relative to recent norms. Tom, probably the only market, if you heat with propane, that is the only market here in the low 48 where there is actually surplus uh, of propane. We are swimming in propane, whereas in our other heating BTUs, 
be it distilled yeah. fuels or natural gas. There is there's well, John, virtually no product. And that's a pizza thing we got to the deck. I mean, is that it's right? killing us. We're using that six days a week exactly. now, propane. That's how you, you stand warm. Every time, it's, like, you told, it's like a hockey goal. you got the kids like eating a, outside. We, we got, propane. We, we got three pieces in there. It's like familia. Uh, You're absolutely you know, ridiculous. Please. Stephen, can you talk to me about the demand supply backdrop going into next year? We've drained a big chunk of the SPR. Europe managed yeah. to refill natural gas, but only doing so through Nord Stream. And they got through most of this year, the back end of this year, because the cold snap didn't kick in until now. Stephen, I want to understand the dynamics into next year. You heard that warning from Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan. Can you run us through that? Well, right now, I, of course, I'm going to agree with Jamie that the long-term structural imbalance between supply and demand globally uh, is not going away. And yes, we have, for the moment, dodged a bullet with regard to the start of winter and the Ukraine war. But we're not addressing the long-term issues of bringing more infrastructure to sate uh, growing demand. The narrative has shifted to a point now where it's moved away from supply, which has been the, the real uh, uh, bullish driver. And now it's a demand picture. I think all the Wall Street banks now are, are, are singing the same chorus about economic contraction in the first half. If we look at the Federal Reserve Bank's favorite recession indicator, the three-month 10-year yield, uh, it has rarely been as bearish as it is currently trading on the inversion right now. So, And then, of course, we look at the employment numbers. Now, the latest job numbers seem to be uh, relatively constructive, but once again, people are not working, especially men in their 20s to 40s. 40s are not working. And we're looking at a huge chasm between the household numbers and the establishment numbers. One, one survey of jobs says, yes, jobs are growing. The other one says, no, jobs are contracting. And then one that says jobs are contracting really can, uh, uh, melds with what we're seeing in the tech sector. Tech, the, the, the white collar, the, the haves are now starting to see massive layoffs, layoffs they haven't seen since the Great Recession. So there's a lot of minefields to kind of navigate in the first half. It's certainly pointing towards in economic contraction. And therefore, that is really, I think, the overhang on the market right now. We're, we're worried less about supply and more about dwindling demand uh, for the new year. Is that worry about demand misplaced given China's reopening? Can China fill the gap even if we do roll over next year? China can fill absolutely fill the gap, and there is that demand. But but they were giving a nice little gift by the West. They were giving a fantastic negotiating price, saying, okay, Russia, you can't sell your oil for more than $60 a barrel. Now, of course, the Indians and the Chinese will continue to buy Russian oil. They will, they will buy it above $60. Uh, I mean, they will negotiate, but they're in a far better negotiating deal. So while this demand will continue to grow uh, as China continues to lower their, their uh, mitigation protocols, uh, yeah. they're still going to be buying oil at a well below market value. Stephen, one final question, really important. How's that electric vehicle thing going? I mean, you follow it tangentially over from your expertise in hydrocarbons, but from where you sit, how's EV doing? Uh, EVs are going to be the biggest drain on the environment that will make 120 years of mining for coal and oil look like a, a like they were members of the Sierra Club here. With the amount of rare earths we have to dig up. Now, personally, guys, I drive an electric hybrid. It is a 17-gallon tank. I just drove. I just had to refill my, my car 
after not filling it for two months, I drove nearly 1,400 miles wow. on a combined electric 17-gallon tank. That's the wave of the future. And so what I'm getting at here is a compromise. We have to work together. Right. It's not a zero-sum oh, game. We are the people. Stephen Short, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.